0: Hey everyone, this is Chad Arms, pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to invite you to visit us. Ash Wednesday is coming up on February 14th. This is the day that begins the season that the church calls Lent, the time right before Easter where Christians everywhere will prepare their hearts to celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus. If there was ever a time to consider visiting a church, Lent would be it. It's really a great time for people to come to church for the first time or to come back to church for the first time in a long time. At our church we'll celebrate Ash Wednesday with a very simple reflective service and then the following Sunday we'll begin a series of sermons on the incredible stories of Jesus life. Stories where he feeds thousands of people with just a couple of fish and a few loaves of bread. Stories where Jesus walks on water. And stories where Jesus is transfigured right in front of his friends and glows brightly. These are incredible stories and they'll help, hopefully, our minds get set on thinking about who Jesus is and all that Jesus has done as we strive to prepare for hopefully an incredible celebration of Easter. And so, I'm thankful that you're listening to the sermon, but I really want to take this minute to invite you to visit one of our services now or during Lent. If that is something you are interested in doing, you can learn all about our Sunday gatherings by clicking Sundays in the menu of this website. If there's any information that you can't find by clicking that link, then just email us. You can email us at us at org. We'd love to answer any questions that you have. Again, thanks for listening to the sermon. I hope that it will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. Well, today we continue a series uh, on pride, as you can see in that video. And the thing about pride is that it is listed as one of The Seven Deadly Sins. And uh, we've covered uh, five of those seven deadly sins. This list that somebody made in the history of the church that is not biblical per se, uh, but a list of of sins that are really bad. And we've seen that in these series. And uh, I'll read them to you again. You can see them all online. We've posted them to our Facebook page. Uh, The skinny glutton, the busy sluggard, broke and greedy, rich and envious, quiet wrath. And if you're built like me, and this is the problem with this kind of super series that we've done. Um, if you're built like me, then you just want the, the. I, I use the word easy, but we want like the quick, straightforward fix. We want to know like, okay, how do I deal with wrath? Just give me a five-step process, you know, seven steps to a healthy life or to being a better leader. We like these, these quick, simple steps in order to to fix things, and the problem with these sins of the heart is that they're super hard to quantify or qualify, and and in fact, I think that when we start to, to uh, say, well, this is too far when it comes to gluttony, or this is too far when it comes to pride, uh, then we become legalists, and Jesus had a lot to say about legalism, and so inevitably, in in, in this the sermon series that I've done on the seven deadly sins, I have a conversation like this. And, and this was a very real conversation in the very first one, The Skinny Glut, and it's like this. Uh, so, Chad, are, are you saying that God cares about what I eat? Yes. Well, does that mean I can't have a brownie? No. Does that means I can have as many brownies as I want? Maybe. It only depends on what God wants you to do with your your food intake, and then the person's just kind of frustrated, and they, they, they don't leave, like, you know, slam the door behind them or whatever, but it's like, I I, I want, I want, I'm talking to you because you're a pastor, and I want to know if I can eat a brownie, you know, And, and this kind of happens with all of them, like when I taught on laziness and the busy sluggard, it's like, are you saying it's a sin, this this may have been a real conversation, for me not to replace the toilet paper when the toilet paper roll runs out? Is that what you're telling me? No, I'm not telling you that. So then I don't have to do that. My wife says I have to do that. Well, I'm not saying that you have to do that. I'm saying talk to God about it. You know, and the people end up kind of frustrated with these things. And this is why I think it's been these, these seven deadly sins series have been uh, some of the most talked about sermon series I've done and maybe some of the most important because it, it forces people to ask these questions of themselves like how does God want me to eat and am I doing the right thing at the right time in the right way and should I be giving more money to things that God wants me to give money to. I mean, where are these lines? What is God actually calling me to do versus if I just tell you, well, God wants you to do this and do this and do this, you just go, okay, yes or no. And pride is, is very similar, right? Like if I say, if you talk about yourselves five times this week, then you have a pride problem, then I'm making things up that are not biblical and I become a legalist and you, you could just say yes or no to that. But but really, the issue of pride when you look biblically is not that simple, and it's not that straightforward. It's the sin of the heart that's really difficult to, to either quantify or qualify. And, and what's so cool about the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at today is, is that in James 4, 1 through 10, James gives us really two barometers, two gauges that, that we can look at and say, well, maybe I am leaning on the side of prideful. Maybe I do have a pride problem. And it's not going to be as simple as like, hey, look at these five things, but but they are barometers that I think are going to be really helpful. And then James is going to start to tell us, and maybe you left last week going, wow, Chad convinced me I had a pride problem, but he didn't tell me really how to deal with it. What a jerk, you know? Um, and, and today in this passage in James, James 4, 1 through 10, we're going to we're going to start to see how we can deal with the pride uh, that's in our lives. And, and to catch you up to speed, if you missed last week, uh, I gave a few definitions of pride. It's one of those things, biblically, that's just easier to see than to define, you know, like with a dictionary definition. Uh, but I liked what the life application commentary had to say. It said, an overconfidence that makes us lose any notion that we are dependent on God. And as I mentioned last week, I, I really liked what Rudolf Schenkenberg said. Uh, who is a commentary writer, he said, pride is a pervasive attitude of mind, making us forget our dependence on God and leading to self-glorification. And really, I, I searched for, I, was, I, was, I really tried to think of something that would rhyme, that would stick in your heads, and nothing was coming to me. I have written down, and this stinks, I know it stinks. It, it, I have written down an elevation of me that diminishes others and forgets my God need that's terrible, that was worse than Rudolph, you know, and his name's Rudolph, I mean, it was no good at all, but as I was laying in bed last night, and I know this is equally as corny, but perhaps more memorable, and let me see if I, I don't have it written down, Um. so apparently I can remember it, but I'm literally laying there just thinking like, I want a better, more memorable, sticky statement to, just so that we can all be on the same page as far as pride goes, and I think this came in my head because last week we saw in First John that the book of First John's written to say like, hey, I want you to know for sure that you actually love God, and there's two things that really are, are very important in understanding if you love God, and pride will prevent both of those things, one is, are you loving other people, and two, are you being obedient to God, okay, so with that in mind, this is, this is what, this is, this is kind of embarrassing to say, but this is what I got for you, I got this, all right, all uh, right. Wait, how did it go? Wait a minute. Hold that. Hold on. I got it. I got it. It goes like this. It goes like this. Um, Me above you and God too. See that? It's not very good. I can tell by looking at you, but you'll remember it. Me above you and God too. It's basically what I'm trying to get at here is that pride is just elevating myself above others and above God, really, and saying, God, I don't need you, I'm not going to be obedient to you, and I'm not going to love these people because I've made myself more important, and to make myself even more corny sounding, in the past, I've defined love this way, I think it's the world's greatest definition of love, and I just keep saying, and people seem to like it, but, uh, but it also rhymes, and, it, and it's this, it's um, them above you as their good you pursue because of their value, them above you as their good you pursue because of their value. And I think that encompasses everything that the Bible says about loving other people. And what struck me is, is maybe God gave me this corny definition. You can blame him, this, this corny idea of, of me above you and God too. What struck me about that is that it stands in the way of love. Because if love, by my definition, a, a definition that I think is biblical, is placing others above myself, then pride stands in the way of me being able to love people because pride elevates me above you and God too. You're feeling it now, right? We're getting there. And so as we think about pride this morning, all I'm saying, I mean, I know it's one of these words that's really hard to define. All I'm saying is that pride is, is this thing within us that makes us more important and other people less important, and other people including this being that we call God, this, this heavenly being, it's making us more important than him too. And so we're going to look at James 4, 1 through 10, and and he won't talk about pride up front or at the beginning, but the whole entire passage, and you'll see this as we move through it, it, is all centered around pride, an elevation of self above others and above God and his wants and his glory and his desires and all of those things. And this is how James starts. It's our first barometer, really. He says in James 4, 1, what causes fights and quarrels among you? This is an incredibly important question. I mean, this is important for like every area of life. This is an important question for little kids who have siblings, and it's like, well, why do we fight? What's the purpose? Why is this happening? Why is there conflict between us? Why do your kids fight? I mean, why is it that your kids are mad at each other all the time and yelling at each other? Why do you fight in your marriage? Like, why are you angry with each other? Why do you fight uh, in your families? Like, why is there so much conflict on Thanksgiving and Christmas? Why are you thankful that the holiday season is over and we've Gotten into January because of all the fighting. Why does that exist? I mean, why is there so much anger and bickering in your workplace? Why in some churches is there fighting and bickering and quarreling and arguing? Why in your neighborhoods? And i uh, it's so funny because when I wrote down neighborhoods, I thought of two very different types of neighborhoods where I see lots of fighting. I, I thought of, uh, you know, like gangs in inner city LA. And then I thought of Villabois uh, right here in our backyard. And it seems like, and if you're if you're part of the Facebook group for the Villabois community, this community that we're in and we love being in, you see fighting and arguing all the time. Somebody says like cars in the street and there's like get people just mad at each other on Facebook over and, over and 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 so I thought of like why do gangs exist? And why do Villebois people always so mad at each other? And, and this is going to answer that question in one just just broad stroke and then like you even think about politics, why is there so much fighting and why can't we have a conversation and why are there wars? James says, why is there fighting and quarreling among you? This is really important that we have an answer to this question. I mean, I think we all know that. Like, if we want to have better families and marriages and countries and neighborhoods and all those things, a better world, then we better know the answer to this question. Because if we could find the answer, then we could do something about it. And if we could do something about it, there would be much more peace. And here's how we normally answer the question. You know this inherently. It's inside of you. What causes fighting and quarrels amongst you? Well, they do, right? I mean, it's them. It's the people that park on the street, and it's the other gang, and it's my wife or my husband. It's my, my brother or my sister. It's the other political party, you know? I mean, this they are the ones that cause all the fighting. Like, it's their fault. And this isn't how James answers the question And James' 4 continuing in verses 1 and then into verse 2 he says you desire but you do not have so you kill you covet but you cannot get what you want so you quarrel and fight what causes fights and quarrels among you you do that's what James says and specifically as we'll see he, he says your pride does it's an elevation of self above the the good the value of other people it says I want, I want. And since I am the most important, and I want, when something stands in the way of me getting what I want, or when someone stands in the way of me getting what I want, then I fight and I argue. And I say, I can't believe they've caused this argument. If only they would have given me what I wanted. The answer that James is going to give us quite clearly in this passage is that if there's fighting and quarreling in your life, then you need to look inside and you need to say, maybe I have a pride problem. When we are prideful, it stands in the way of us getting along with others because we've elevated ourselves above them and they sometimes get in the way of what we want. We know that. People are always in the way of us getting the things that we want. And so there's fighting and quarreling. Your spouse doesn't do the thing that you asked them to do, fighting and quarreling because you didn't get your way. Your neighbors aren't doing the things that make your life easier. They haven't cut the grass in a while or whatever and it's devaluing your house and so you go knock on their door and you yell at them or whatever. You're not getting what you want. In the political world, it's the same, right? Like I want it to go this way, you want it to go this way. And most of the time, the arguing, not necessarily the differences in viewpoint, but the arguing happens because we aren't getting our way. We know that wars start for the same reason. There's some guy, he's a dictator, he wants something that's not his, and so he goes and takes it, or tries to take it. James says, what causes fighting and quarreling amongst you? It's you, and it's your pride. Pride is really difficult to qualify or quantify, but but just know this, uh, that, that if you see a lot of arguing and bickering in your life, then it's a suggestion here that you might have a pride problem. You have elevated yourself over other people. You have placed you above them. And you need to think deeply about that. It's so easy to spend our life saying they, 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 they have a problem. But if there's fighting and quarreling in you, then probably you have a pride problem. And then James, he's going to just, this is even, I think, I think it's, it's a better barometer almost, and it's a, a, a more convicting barometer for me. And the rest of verse 2 and verse 3, he says, You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasure. Your pleasures. Your prayers gauge your pride. That's what James, whether intentionally or accidentally, says to us here. Your prayers will gauge your pride. In two ways, really. One, James says here, look, you fight and you argue. It's because you don't get what you want. And you don't get what you want because you don't ask. The first thing that James says about our pride and our prayer life is, is if you're not praying, then you have a pride problem. Now, what you would say is not that. You would say, I'm not praying because I have a busyness problem, right? That's what you would say to me. You'd say like, hey, I should pray more, but I'm too busy. But what James says is, you're not praying, you have a pride problem. And if you think about it, I mean, a busy problem and a pride problem are virtually the same thing because your busyness is driven by the idea that, that you're more important than other people and you're even more, more important than God and, and you need to work harder because God really, you know, you maybe you'll pray to him or whatever, but he's probably not going to take care of it. And really, you have the power to do the things that you need to do and to accomplish the things that you want to accomplish. And so if I get to prayer, I can maybe add that into my to-do list, but I don't really need to pray because I'm the one, I'm the one, me, who's going to accomplish the things that I want to accomplish. It's pretty easy to see, right? Like prayer, lack of prayer is a sign of a pride problem. Now, look, just, I mean, just think of it. You can say whatever you, you, I know you're probably rationalizing in your head right now. Well, if you knew my work schedule, whatever. I don't care. You're wrong, and you know you're wrong, because right now inside of you, you know, you know, you're thinking about you're like, I don't pray very often. And I'm telling you, and James seems to be suggesting, and you'll see this as we move through the passage, you don't pray enough, not because you're too busy or, because, I don't know, because you have kids or whatever. You, you don't pray enough because you have a pride problem. You've elevated yourself above others. And you've elevated yourself, more importantly, to this above God. And God's called you to prayer. You're just saying no. No. <laughs> God's saying, hey, uh, you ask, and I'm the one that's gonna help you, and you find your very being in me, your very breath is from me, and don't worry, he says often, pray. I mean, that's like a common thing in the New Testament, don't worry, pray, and you're like, hey, eh, I'll try not to worry, but I'll do. It's saying, God, I'm, I got this, and you don't. It's pride, and so James says, look, hey, here's the deal. You wanna know if you have a pride problem? See how much bickering and arguing there is in your life? And once you look at that, if you see the bickering and arguing, here's another way you can tell if you have a pride problem, if you don't pray. But there's this other way. You, you're, if, you're, if you're a good prayer, if you pray often, you're thinking like, sweet, I'm good, I'm safe, you know. But listen, the other part is like, hey, when you ask, you do not receive. Notice this. Because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. The other way that, pride, uh, that prayer gauges pride is, is simply this. When we listen to ourselves pray, we begin to hear whether or not we're the most important or whether people, other people, and God are the most important. Just stop and think about what you pray and consider if you ever pray things that have no benefit to you. Most of the time, most people, Christian and non-Christian, christian will pray things that are inherently selfish, and in in fact, let's just use the word, they're inherently prideful. God, I want this, I want this, I want this, I want this, and I want this. And then we go, can't believe God didn't give it to me. And, And here, I mean, what we see is that it's the wrong motives. It's a prideful motive our prayers if they are going to be loving and not prideful if they're going to be god-centered and not us-centered they're they're not going to sound like i want this and i want this and i want this it's going to be like god help them and it's going to be like god glorify yourself i mean like here's one and this is one i've i've been doing pretty good on and so i use an example that's easy for me and uh a fictional book really impacted me in this way, but uh, but I've noticed I, I'm really I'm a really good prayer when I'm praying with my daughter because prayer teaches so much. And so I actually am, you know, I'm really thinking about what I'm praying and not just saying, God, I need your help with this today and I'm kind of busy and, you know, I don't feel well or whatever. Um, but like how often do you pray for for Christians who are being persecuted on the other side of the world? Like how much prayer do you spend praying that, that they'd be set free or that the persecution would stop or that their food would taste better even though it's probably terrible or that, that the pain would be lessened, you know? I mean, how often do you pray th- those types of things that have no benefit to you, no benefit? You'll never see or experience probably an answer to those prayers in this lifetime. You may never know if God says yes to those things. I mean, how, how often do you pray things like that? Or how often do you pray things like this? God, I'm going to the doctor. They say it might be cancer. God, if it's gonna bring honor and glory and fame to your name, let it be cancer. Have You ever prayed something like that? We just say, God, don't let me be sick. And it's a pride thing. I mean, Jesus is about to go to the cross and Jesus says like, God, I really don't wanna go through this. This is gonna be terrible but hey, your will and not my will. What's good for your glory and not my glory? In fact, Jesus spent his entire life saying what will glorify the Father in heaven, not what will glorify me. The reality is that if you listen to your prayers, even how you pray for other people, a lot of times those prayers can be selfish too. God, I, I, I want my kids to be healthy. That's a great prayer. It's something we should be praying But if we really stop to pause, it's because I don't want to deal with the sorrow of them being sick, right? And I think about it in in just how I pray for their success and their futures. Like, how often am I praying, God, just let them glorify you, even if it means that you take their life. It's like, God, keep them safe because I don't want to deal with the pain. James gives us these, these two incredible barometers for our pride, and it's like, Do you have a lot of arguing and bickering in your life? And then what do your prayers sound like? I've often thought I should record my prayers. Um, I I know it's weird. I've never done it. I think it would be extremely uncomfortable to listen back to. Uh, But they're just, it it would be so eye-opening because it would sound a lot just like my own wishes. It would sound a lot like I had got a genie, you know, and I just wanted a bunch of stuff. And so I I just, I just here want to say, like, think, think about the arguing in your life and then think about your prayers. And if they're non-existent, you have a pride problem. And if they're all about you, you have a pride problem. That's what James says. And so here, then James transitions and he's going to begin to to show us how we can deal with this pride. And James 4, 4 and 5 Uh, He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell inside of us? This is basically the same thing that we saw last week in 1 John. And that is that you can't serve two masters. You can't love the world and God you can't be a friend of the world and God and now let's remind let me remind you of what the world is here the world is not uh, the earth the world is not people the world is the system that is inherently against God whether intentionally or unintentionally John MacArthur says it's the full spectrum of beliefs and inclination that oppose the things of God and we talked about last week how how it's you don't ever have to you know you don't have to to think very hard to see this right like most movies tear at the fabric of God you don't go to the average movie and go I've been uplifted and I want to serve God better you may be middle at best but a lot of movies tear at the very fabric of God in fact, I would offer as as I, I just popped into my head that that one of the ways that that the very foundation of truth has been torn at in our society is through movies and television that show us over and over, like, hey, the bad guy isn't that bad, you know, because he has a past. And so maybe his his ways are right for him. And it's just, it's been happening for years. And now you look at a whole generation of people that we call millennials, of which I maybe am one, and and, and we've torn just down the idea of truth. And so it's hard to have a conversation about truth. Because truth has been torn at by the world. And so it just makes sense. It makes sense that James says, like, hey, you can't be friends with this system that is opposed to God and friends with God because it's opposed to Him. It's not like saying, like, hey, I'm a fan of the Portland Trailblazers and the Los Angeles Lakers. It's like saying, man, I want the best for Jewish people, but I love Nazis. It just can't happen. It's like too adamantly against each other. It's too polarizing. To love a system that is against God is to no longer love God. And our pride is drawn. It's drawn to the things of the world. As First John said, at the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh, we want, because of our pride, the things of this world. And it tears at our relationship with God. And if we don't fix the pride problem, then we will spend our lives chasing the things of the world. We will spend our, li- spend our lives being a friend of the world and not fully embracing and loving and glorifying God the way that he wants to be loved and glorified. And it says at the end of that verse, like, God's jealous for you. I love that. He's put a spirit inside of you and and there's debate on whether that means the Holy Spirit and this is directed at Christians or whether that means just like the spirit. As Christians, we don't believe that you're just a body. We think there's something metaphysical about you, a spirit that's inside of you that God has placed there that makes you, you. Not just some cells, not just a little bit of DNA, but there's a spirit inside of you. Every one of you. And God God gave you that spirit to have a relationship with you and he's jealous for it. And he's watching you out of your pride chase the things of the world and not love him and it bothers him. And in the next verse it says this great thing because that's convicting, right? Like, oh, I have a pride problem and yeah, I don't love God enough and man, I'm chasing the things that everybody else chases. But he gives us more grace. That's what verse six says. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. I mean, God wants you to be broken and contrite so that he can pour out his grace upon you. And the reality is, this is the truth. His grace will not come while you are living a life of pride. I mean, just think about it. If you're you're not a Christian, let's, let's, I mean, man, I know people that are just not Christians and they'll give you all of these scientific reasons that they're not Christians. I just found out this week, 51% of people who who are labeled as scientists in our country actually believe in a creator. But man, it's the battle cry of every non-Christian, right? Well, science says there's no God. Well, 51%, a majority of scientists say there is. So I, I know, I know that while we have these excuses, most of the time it boils down to this. I want to elevate myself and I don't want to have to lower myself for this being that created and saved me. I don't want to have to give up the things that I call fun. I don't want to have to, to, to change jobs or to not do certain things. I want to do what I want to do because let's face it, if you're not a Christian, you are the center of your life. You are. And it's a pretty fun place to be sometimes, the very center of our lives. But that pride will stand in the way of you looking at the cross, a cross where Jesus died for your sins and then looking at the the tomb where Jesus was no longer after he rose from the grave. It will prevent you from looking at those things and saying, Jesus, I give my life to you because you'll say, I've given my life to me. I've given my life to me. And in fact, this other excuse for not being a Christian, well, there's no such thing as sin. I'm okay without a savior. You're not okay without a savior. That's pride talking. You've done things that you know you need forgiveness for. You've done things that you know are evil. You've thought things that you would never tell another person. But pride says, I'm okay anyway. I'm pretty big deal. And God's looking at you and saying, I want to give you more grace. I died so that you might be saved and forgiven. Just lower your pride and accept me as your Savior. But pride will prevent the Christian from finding the favor of God that they want. That's what it seems to say. God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. That's a common refrain throughout Scripture. If you'll humble yourself, then God will pour out his favor on you. Now, that doesn't always mean the things that, that a lot of famous preachers would like you to think. It means that you'll all of a sudden get rich and everything will go well and it will be perfect for you. If you'll just be humble and give us your money at this church, then everything will go well for you. That's kind of what you hear on television, right, from the famous preachers. That's not what he's saying, but he's saying his favor will be poured upon you. And for sure that means that God will bring you more peace and more joy and more hope and you'll feel his forgiveness and his presence will be with you in a stronger way. It has to mean those things. And we'll cover that more in just a second. Because here's, here's the anecdote to pride. It says, come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. I skipped a verse. Verse seven. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And this is the very center of this passage. If you want to break your pride, then you must submit yourselves to God and resist the devil. Now, this term for submit is a military term that means like to, to fall in rank, to line up underneath somebody that's your captain or your general or somebody above you, superior to you. And, and it's just so simple, right? It makes so much sense. If pride is an elevation of me, then the anecdote is to look at God and say, well, I'm going to elevate you above me. I'm going to fall underneath you. I'm going to submit to you. I'm going to get behind you. I'm going to walk where you want me to walk and go where you want me to go. But this must be a tangible decision because life pulls us in the opposite direction of this. We must wake up and daily we must say, God, I'm going to make myself the most important today if I, if I don't think about it. But here's what I'm going to do instead. I'm going to make you the most important. And I'm going to submit my, my life to you. I'm going to submit to you. And then we must, we must resist the devil. Who thinks about that? Especially in our Baptist background, right? Like, we don't think about that. Who's Satan, you know? I mean, he's been conquered. I mean, this is what James says. Like, you have to fight against Satan. First Peter says that the that, that, that evil forces are waging war against your soul. And we're like, eh, this Christian thing's kind of a walk in the park. Yeah, because you're prideful. But when you try to submit to God, then Satan's going to come in there and he's going to fight, fight, fight. And you need to do your best to resist him. And then James says in 4, 8 and 9, come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning. And your joy to gloom. And the first part of this has as its background. The language of the temple in the Old Testament. And the temple was this magnificent building. Where God's presence was most fully uh, experienced and felt. And, and really was. And, and the people would come there. And they'd make sacrifices there. They'd meet with God there. And they'd have their interactions with God there. And here's what's so interesting about that background. Is it points to these three things that I think are so Important. When it comes to being a person who's trying to remove pride. The first one is God's presence. You need to be a person who's actively seeking God's presence in your life. That means you need to put down your phone and shut off your TV. And just go before God and bow down and say, God, I need you to be here with me. I need you to walk with me. I need you to fill me. I need you to surround me. I need you to be with me. Because if you're not, then I'll be prideful. And the other thing is holiness. You can't be humble and, and live a life of unchecked impurity. You must fight to be obedient to God, to do what God wants, to strive to live as pure as possible, not to walk some line that says, well, I'll be really close to being disobedient to God, but I'll try to be on the right side of that. You must strive to For purity, the Old Testament tells the story of the temple and the people had to wash and wash and wash in order to be able to move towards God's presence. And when it comes to pride, we must be doing our best to be clean in his presence. And the final one, something that's just been rattling around in my brain and it's getting its own sermon series next year, but but the final one, when we think of the temple, we can't help but think about sacrifice. And the reality is most of us who live in modern America and go to modern American churches sacrifice very little for the glory of God. But when we are unwilling to sacrifice for God, then we will always be prideful. Sacrifice tears at our pride. Because it's giving up of ourselves and saying, look, I struggle with making myself the most important, but God, I'll do this for you, I'll give this to you, or I'll be this for you, even though it costs me much. We must be a people who seek God's presence and strive for holiness and sacrifice. And then in James 4, 10, he answers a question that you maybe haven't even thought to ask yet. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord. And he will lift you up. The fear in lowering yourself is that you'll be low, right? Isn't that the fear? Isn't that why we constantly fight pride? Because if we aren't building ourselves up, who will? If I'm lowering myself, then the person next to me who's not will just kick me to the curb and beat me down and life will cause me to struggle and struggle and I'll always be low. And so James says, hey, I know. I know what your fear is. You probably haven't even thought about it yet, but I know what your fear is. If I lower myself, I'll be low. And James says, humble yourselves, lower yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. This, of course, has eschatological Uh, implications that means the end when we die or when Jesus comes back I mean this in this moment Jesus will take us up to be with him and we will be lifted up and we will get our mansion and we will walk the streets of gold and we will spend eternity having fun and eating great food I mean this is this is of course part of that We lower ourselves knowing that ultimately God, if we've given our lives to Jesus, if we've accepted the gift of salvation that he offers through the cross, then ultimately we're gonna live in this perfect state called heaven and then we'll come back to a place called earth that's been rebuilt and it will be perfect. I look forward to skydiving in heaven because I would totally skydive if I knew I wasn't gonna hit the ground. (laughs) And, and what James is saying is that, and then he's saying like, God's gonna do a great work in you if you'll just lower yourself. The most influential people seem to be the people who have cared very little about elevating themselves. The most impl- influential people in, in Christianity, I should say, are, are the people who have just said, God, I want to just serve you, and I don't want to be seen, and I don't want to you know, be known, and I don't want to be rich, and I don't want to be famous. I just want to serve you. And then God just keeps on using them, and that has to be part of this i know I know I've said a lot here, but i just I just want to read a couple more verses, because they're right in line, and, and the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 3 through 5, part of Jesus' longest sermon, he, he begins this way, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, I mean, blessed are those who are lowering themselves, this isn't about just intentionally trying to be sad, which I'm sure, sure some people have tried to take in and say, well, I should just always be sad, this is about lowering yourself, Matthew 19, 28 through 30. There's this interesting conversation. And Peter, the conversation ends with Peter looking at Jesus and says, What's in it for us? We've given up everything for you. What are we gonna get out of this? And Jesus says, truly I tell you with the renewal of all things, when the son of man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields, for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. Jesus says, if you'll just lower yourself and raise me up, there's a lot in it for you. There's a lot in it for you. Let me try to recap quickly because I just as I was going through this, this sermon, it was like there's so much here and, uh, and I like it all and I'm going to keep it in. And, and so let me just say this again. Pride is me above you and God too. You got that one? Pride leads to fights and quarrels. Pride Uh, excuse me, your prayers gauge your pride. Pride tears at your relationship with God. Pride is overcome by submitting to God and resisting Satan. You submit to God by striving for his presence and for purity and sacrificing. And if you lower yourself, God will lift you up. Pride is overcome by submitting to God through drawing near to him, striving for purity and living a life of sacrifice. Man, I hope that you'll do it. I hope that you'll work to to lower your pride, to lower yourself is what I should say because I think that then the blessings will come down in incredible ways. Let me pray that that will happen. Lord, I know there's people here and people, God, who will listen online that first, God, their pride stands in the way of them having a relationship with you, of them experiencing your grace. And Lord, I have experienced your grace. And it's the most incredible grace. It's the most incredible gift. It's the most incredible thing I have. Your grace and all that has benefited me. And I want every person to know it, to experience it, to have it, God. And so I pray, God, that you would, by the power of your spirit, God, help people even right now to make a choice to lower themselves and to stop using the excuse of science. Or, or, or the idea, God, that they don't need a savior, that they'll be okay. I pray that they remove those excuses and they'd give their lives to you. And then I pray for those of us who, God, are Christians, who are trying to serve you. And all of us, God, I believe, have a, a pride problem to some degree, some worse than others, God. But I pray that all of us, God, even now, would make a decision, God, to lower ourselves to lower ourselves, God, and to come near to you, God, to lower ourselves and to resist Satan, to lower ourselves, God, and to strive for purity, to lower ourselves, God, and to make sacrifices for you. God, I'm convinced there's people in front of me who, who God, while they may say all the right things, they barely have a relationship with you at this point because their impurity stands in the way, because their selfishness stands in the way, because of their pride, God. And I pray that right now you'd convict them, but God, you'd also remind them that you are jealous for them. And God, you have given them more grace. And if they will turn to you, then you, God, if they'll humble themselves before you, then you, God, will lift them up. And I pray that they would make a decision to do that now. Lord Jesus, move through this sermon Use what I've said this morning. Use James 4, 1 through 10 to help us be people that raise you up, God, and love others, lowering ourselves. I pray these things in your holy name. Amen.